Hi everyone, Sandman here. Today I'm going to talk about how early feminists, or suffragettes, were responsible for prohibition in the early 20th century, and how it was used as an excuse to destroy the traditionally male space known as a bar or a saloon. The temperance movement helped to stop the sale of alcohol in the United States from 1919 up to 1933 through prohibition, but its roots are found before the U.S. Civil War. At that time, it was a movement that was run predominantly by men, which is why it didn't succeed. Men typically use logic and reason instead of shaming tactics to convince other men and women to take a particular course of action. Anyways, it took a woman's touch for prohibition to become the law of the land. Women had a major role in the temperance movement in the early 20th century. And in fact, there were more women involved in the temperance movement than the, than the suffrage movement at that time. But many of the women in the temperance movement focused their efforts on the suffrage movement instead because they recognized that if women got the vote in the United States, they would have a better chance of implementing prohibition by influencing politicians. I think it's important to understand why women wanted men to stop drinking alcohol and how the suffragettes and temperance movement were the first types of organized feminism to succeed in the modern age. Women hate alcohol because drink, drunken men are less productive and thus produce less wealth that can be extracted by women. Alcohol also reduces men's ability to get an erection. So women had a harder time tempting their husbands as men preferred getting drunk instead of having sex with their own wives. Not to mention that the money spent on alcohol could have been used to purchase shoes, dresses, and many other consumer goods enjoyed predominantly by women. Saloons and bars were a threat because men spent more money drinking instead of at home with their wives and children. Saloons have traditionally been male spaces for most of history because women have been perpetually pregnant during most of history due to higher rates of child mortality. A child with fetal alcohol syndrome would have brought shame to many women, so alcohol was not something they could consume out in the open. Once child mortality rates fell in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, women decided that it was time for a full-out assault on male drinking spaces. The first big assault on bars and saloons came in 1873. According to Gail Collins in her book America's Woman, just before Christmas of 1873, about 80 married women marched up to the saloons in Hillsboro, Ohio, demanding that they close forever. The demonstrations went on for months, attracting national attention. A reporter from Cincinnati interviewed a Hillsboro man who said he and his friends walked into a bar and ordered drinks when all of a sudden the rustle of women's wear attracted their attention. And looking up, they saw what they had thought was a crowd of a thousand ladies entering. One of the horrified men saw his mother and sister another is future mother-in-law. Soon, women in small towns all over Ohio were kneeling in the snow before the town taverns, singing hymns and sometimes taking an axe to the bartender's wares. Seemingly spontaneous assaults on saloons, which were in fact frequently urged by the male temperance lecturers, occurred nearly in 1,000 communities, involving tens of thousands of women over a period of about six months. It was the start of an anti-alcohol crusade by America's middle-class women that would continue until Prohibition made that law legal 
1919. Traditionally, husbands would spend all day working and then go out for a few drinks after work. And women were excluded from both the factories or offices as well as the bars and saloons. Men would typically spend all of their weekdays away from the family and help around the house on Saturdays and sober up just in time to look respectable on Sundays so the wives could display their husbands at the local church on Sunday. Many people assume that Sundays are God's day in the Christian faith, but they are really an excuse for women to meet together and parade their husbands and children for all to see. Nothing made women salivate more than getting the family dressed in their family best for Sunday. Religion was used as an excuse for women to have a fashion show. It's not God's day of worship, but the day for worship of women and their fashions. Today, on the other hand, it seems that every day is the day of worship for women. It's no wonder no one goes to church anymore. Once women invaded traditionally male work and leisure spaces, they could keep an eye on their men and make themselves the center of attention in each of these places. Many women are like the Gestapo. They gather intelligence and then call a meeting with their girlfriends to decide the fate of some poor male soul. My father was alive during the Second World War, and he told me many stories about how a Gestapo agent saw something suspicious, and then he would never really handle it himself. Instead, he used his hand crank radio to call in for immediate backup. And then a whole bunch of agents would show up and intimidate or beat some poor young guy on the street. This is how women act. They don't take immediate action based on their own emotions. Instead, they discuss their feelings with other women, and they gather together and form a consensus, and then take subtle actions to encourage what they deem to be appropriate male behavior. Women, it seems, can be rational when it comes to manipulating the feelings of men to do their own bidding. But if their subtle maneuvers don't work, then they have no problem becoming violent for their causes. I found another quote from Gail Collins' book called America's Woman to describe how women invade male space in the late 19th and early 20th century and how they use violence to get men to conform to their own wishes. Here's the quote. The ultimate symbol of saloon smashing was Carrie Nation, who first drew national attention in 1900 when she walked into a rather elegant bar in the Hotel Carrie in Wichita, Kansas, and threw two stones at a huge nude painting of Cleopatra at the bath, ripping the canvas. She shattered a $1,500 mirror, drove the patrons from the room with her cane, and broke all the bottles and glasses on the bar. Her second husband left her when she had become a celebrity, and she embarked on a career of lecturing, smashing, and publishing magazines like The Hatchet and The Smasher's Mail. She also inspired imitators like Mary Sheriff, who organized the Flying Squadron of Jesus, 15 women who raided bars along the Oklahoma border. Women were violent and destroyed property and weren't punished to the full extent of the law. In fact, they were, became revered celebrities for trashing traditionally male spaces. Once women became free of the never-ending cycle of birthing and childbearing that they were doing up until the 20th century, they started thinking about their own personal rights. For most of history, women didn't have the time to look after their own rights. The irony of prohibition is that it backfired in their face. Governments in the United States collected taxes on liquor, and now that tax revenue was gone and was going into the hands of male mobsters. 
the prohibition laws were unenforceable, and there were more alcoholics than ever before. Men went to illegal drinking establishments, so women had an even harder time finding their husbands in the evenings. Secret male drinking saloons were popping up all over America in the 1920s. The legal system became inundated and backlogged with drinking-related court cases. The cost of prohibition was too great for the government. The government said enough is enough once the Great Depression began. The tax revenue from liquor looked good as many other sources of government income disappeared during the Great Depression. This wasn't the first time women tried to outlaw male spaces where beverages were consumed. The first proto-feminists in the 1670s in England tried to outlaw the drinking of coffee. In 1675, King Charles II of England banned coffee. All male coffee clubs were popular among the British aristocracy and in intellectual classes. According to the women that pushed the king to ban coffee, they were complaining that coffee was making their husbands Frenchified pansies who lost all interest in having sex with their wives. History has proven that whenever men gain intellectual and sexual freedom, women are there with a shameful gossip to destroy male spaces and convince men that the only stimulant and drug that men need is a woman's vagina. I'm putting a link to the 1674 petition against coffee that women presented to the King of England. I'm going to do my best to translate the language from that time. Please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Essentially, the first page of the petition is saying that England was once a paradise for women because of the brisk activity of men, and when were the most able performers or workers of Christendom. But now there is a decay of the true old English vigor. Our gallants, or gentlemen, have become Frenchified. On this first page, you can see that the women writing the petition are using shaming language directly aimed at the king, basically saying that his subjects are like the French, which is a big insult to the English monarch. Also saying that they were once the most able performers of Christendom is saying that they are no longer the best Christians in the world. On the second page, I found this line extremely entertaining. We have read how a prince of Spain was forced to make a law that men should not repeat the grand kindness to their women about nine times in a night. But alas, alas, those forwards days are gone. This is yet another shameful attack on the king, saying that Spanish men were making love to their wives nine times a night, and that a prince in Spain had to draft the law to stop men from having sex with their wives so much. The women in the petition go on to say that coffee is insufferable and a disaster, and that this is another quote, excessive use of that newfangled, abominable, heathenish liquor called coffee, which rifling nature of her choicest treasures and drying up of the radical moisture has so eunuched our husbands and crippled our more kind gallants, and they are become as impotent as age and as unfruitful as those deserts whence the unhappy berry is said to be brought. Well, it's a coffee bean, and not a berry, but close enough, I suppose. This next section reads, They come from it with nothing moist but their snotty noses, nothing stiff about their joints, nor standing by their ears. They pretend twill keep them waking. Then, on the third page, is my favorite part, as they say that, nor can all the art we use receive them from this lethargy. So unfit they are for action that like young, trained band men, when called upon duty, 
Their ammunition is wanting. Per adventure they present, but cannot give fire. Essentially, they are saying that men are shooting blanks when it comes to love, and they aren't producing enough sperm. I'll continue reading the rest without interruption. She approaches the nuptial bed, expecting that a man with sprightly embraces should answer the vigor of her flames. She, on the contrary, should only meet a bed full of bones and hug a meager, useless corpse, render this sapless and as bewitching efforts of this most pernicious coffee, whereby nature is enfeebled, the offspring of our mighty ancestors dwindled into a succession of apes and pygmies. We have reason to apprehend and grow jealous that men, by frequenting these Stygian taphouses, will usurp on our prerogative of tattling, and will soon learn to exceed us in talkativeness, a quality wherein our sex has ever claimed preeminence. You can surely see that women were scared that men would begin to gossip and lose interest in sexuality altogether. Women thought men were gossiping about them in coffee houses. But what was really happening is that they were being intellectuals. It's almost as if the women of Britain wanted their men to remain dumb brutes and not learn to communicate with each other. This is where I believe a woman's strength of influence lies. Not in changing or influencing the minds of men, but creating situations where men are unable to communicate with each other and thus unable to grow and evolve as individuals or as a collective. This is why women hate it when men go out with their friends. Because if the topics of conversation becomes women, then men might reveal to each other the deception that their own wives and girlfriends present them. You can't have the slaves leaving the plantation and discussing what goes on on the plantation without the overseers hanging around. Women lack the ability to adopt to changes in male behavior, so instead they try to prevent those changes from happening in the first place. If changing things causes too much pain and suffering for them, or the state, then they attempt to infiltrate those particular male spaces and destroy them from the inside out. If that doesn't work, then they change the nature of male space into a space that has to cater to women's interests. If you want to read more about this coffee petition, then just follow the link below. Alcohol and coffee actually lower a man's sex drive in most cases. So women were losing the power of the pussy. We can argue that for some women, this is the only real power that they ever have. The ideal that women strive for is one where the state and women walk hand in hand together, keeping men horny and sex crazed and always interested in their vaginas. This is the nightmare that women want us men to suffer. Thanks for watching my video. Enjoy the rest of your day. And cheers.